This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee on day 51 of the 60-day legislative session where the House will vote on a bill to overhaul the unemployment program. It changes the system, but really does nothing about the stingy benefits. We were in the bottom 10 when it comes to states providing unemployment benefits. The bottom 10. I don't know about y'all, but I like to be on top as a state, not the worst as a state. The House could also vote today on a bill to consolidate the voucher programs that allow students to attend private schools on the public dime. Opponents of the bill say what's missing is accountability. If we're all about accountability, then by goodness, we need to make sure that these voucher schools are accountable for these dollars. The Senate's version of election reform clears the Rules Committee and is headed for the floor. A lot's been said about this bill, and I understand elections are controversial, and I understand there's a fear we're trying to take away the right of people to vote. I also want you to know there, that is not the motivation of this bill, it's not the intention of the sponsor. Two of the most controversial bills of the session have been taken off the agenda by their sponsors. First came the ban on transgender athletes. Senator Stargell. Thank you, Madam Chair. I would like to TP this bill. Show the motion to adopt that objection. And a few hours later in the very same committee, the alimony reform bill was temporarily postponed by Senator Joe Gruters. I'm going to TP the bill and bring this bill back next year. Technically, the bills are not dead and there are procedural maneuvers that could bring them back. Nothing is really over until the session is done. In Washington, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz has reintroduced a bill requiring background checks to buy bullets. Federal law does not require a background check to prevent prohibited purchasers from acquiring ammunition. Jamie's law will close this ammo loophole by requiring background checks for ammunition purchases. Jamie's law is named in honor of one of the teenagers killed during the Parkland massacre. You'll hear from her dad later in the podcast. We'll also have your calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man who threatened to burn down a woman's home because she wouldn't let him move in after his grandmother kicked him out. But first, a word from the sponsor. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. This public health crisis has shown our one-size-fits-all education system does not meet the needs of every child. Senate Bill 48 rethinks education and provides needed flexibility for students and families, giving students the tools and resources they need to unleash their potential. You can make a difference and improve our education system by visiting fledreform.com to tell your lawmaker to support SB 48. Paid for by Americans Prosperity Florida. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, April 21st. This is National Tea Day, National Kindergarten Day, and National Bulldogs Are Beautiful Day. On this date in 1649, the Colony of Maryland passed what they called the Toleration Act. It allowed freedom of worship for Christians while sentencing anyone who rejected the divinity of Jesus to death. In 1956, Elvis Presley's first hit record, Heartbreak Hotel, reached number one on the charts. And on this date in 1963, the Beatles met the Rolling Stones for the very first time. Florida's Department of Health reported 5,645 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 Tuesday and 67 additional fatalities. Our death toll stands at 35,207. An election reform bill has cleared the Rules Committee in the Florida Senate and is ready for the floor. SB 90 has been controversial from the start as critics charged it was part of a national campaign of voter suppression by Republicans who are still fuming over Donald Trump's loss. Senate Democratic leader Gary Farmer says the latest version of this bill is better, but it's still bad. Receiving a ballot in the mail 
so that you have the option of voting by mail, if you so choose, is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. There's certainly been no fraud or abuse or untoward practices with regard to the vote by mail. Uh, the same goes for the simple act of picking up a friend's ballot and dropping it in the mail for them or dropping it in a drop box for them. There have been no showings or, or actual cases of any actual fraud with regard to this process. And so, um, and, and some of the provisions regarding uh, vote by mail signatures and the provisions regarding what you can and cannot do at a polling place vis-a-vis -vis the, what we call the solicitation provisions of this bill, again, uh, address issues uh, for which there has been no uh, showing of any wrongdoing uh, or fraud or activities that question the accuracy of the vote. Uh, in fact, to the contrary, uh, our governor called this the most transparent and efficient election we've ever had in the state of Florida. He held this up for a, as a model uh, for other states. And so we believe this bill does go too far and will result in potential disenfranchisement. And uh, I hope that we can continue to try to improve upon uh, this bill or diminish the prospects of uh, disenfranchisement of voters. And we've seen in other states, in Georgia in particular, where uh, a passage of a draconian uh, voting bill, including you know the inability to hand out water in line. Um, and this bill does even limit some of those activities. Uh, when people are in line, now volunteers can't do the simple, graceful act of handing somebody a bottle of water who's been standing in line maybe for, for several hours in, in the humid Florida heat. Democrats aren't the only ones complaining. Republican Senator Jeff Brandis of St. Petersburg says people who run our election systems don't want it either. To my knowledge, not one Republican supervisor of elections in the state of Florida supports this bill in its current form. Um, I need to put on the record that even our good friend, Senator Hayes, who has left here to become a supervisor of election, one of the most staunch conservatives of, in, that has run through this chamber, has, uh, has strongly opposed this piece of legislation and believes that it will not work and will frankly hurt the voting process. So I just need to put that on the record because obviously I'm probably going to get a number of phone calls after this bill, after this vote. But I want to ensure that that Floridians understand that that the Republicans that have run for office to represent uh, a fair election process in the state of Florida, to my knowledge, not one Republican supervisor has stood up and support said they support this piece of legislation, and therefore I will not support it. The sponsor of the bill, Senator Dennis Baxley of Ocala, says he understands the concerns about voter suppression, but says that's not what this is. A lot's been said about this bill, and I understand elections are controversial, and I understand there's a fear we're trying to take away the right of people to vote. I also want you to know there, that is not the motivation of this bill, is not the intention of the sponsor. There are issues in this bill that started with what we believe were good intentions to protect all voters. I and our staff have listened and made changes to adjust and clarify this bill. The purpose, at least for me, has always been to clarify our intent for secure, fair, and even-handed elections. 
I believe the bill before you does that. I know this bill has changed a lot because we listened. I can look in the eye and tell you our motivation, my motivation, is to protect votes, to protect ballot boxes with ballots inside from being destroyed, any ballot, Republican or Democrat, to ensure, unlike other states, that a glass of water given in sincerity is not a violation of the law, and to balance ease of voting for a voter is maintained, making sure every ballot box cannot be unfairly uh, stuffed. The bill passed the Rules Committee on a vote of 10 to 7 and is headed for the floor. The House of Representatives is expected to vote today on a bill to expand and reorganize Florida voucher programs that allow students to attend private schools with public dollars. Vouchers became a thing during the Jeb Bush administration, and each year lawmakers push the envelope a bit more, or a lot more, as is the case this year. Republicans say they're doing this to give parents more choices for the education of their kids. Democrats see it as an attack on public schools. There's also a difference when it comes to accountability. Public schools have to meet all sorts of standards and are graded by the state every year, but Representative Robin Bartleman of Weston says voucher schools are not held accountable, and she offered an amendment to change that. Of all of the schools that take vouchers, 75% of them are not disclosing any of their data, even on the norm reference tests, where this legislature in this states believes it's so important that children get educated that we're going to publish data and we're going to put a grade on each and every school because we want our tax dollars spent wisely. But as it pertains to vouchers, 75% of those schools are not required to disclose anything. And this one report again shows that two-thirds of the voucher schools have negative learning gains. There is a school in Miami that has a three-year average of a negative 10% learning gain. Those are my tax dollars. Those kids are not getting that education. I believe in parity. If you think that it's important enough to hold public schools accountable, it's important enough to hold these voucher schools accountable. We're responsible for creating an educated workforce. And everyone wants to make sure that kids get the highest quality education. And you may not vote for my amendment today, but I guarantee you two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, we're going to be back in this chamber wondering what happened to our education system. You can't just give out money without any accountability. When we're talking about tax dollars, I want them spent in a classroom that has a highly effective teacher that is certified. I want them spent in a classroom that has some level of accountability. These schools do not even have to take a criterion reference test. If we're all about accountability, then by goodness, we need to make sure that these voucher schools are accountable for these dollars. Her amendment was rejected, and that wasn't the only setback for accountability. Representative Joe Geller of Aventura asked Representative Randy Fine of Palm Bay, the sponsor of the voucher bill, why he wants to eliminate two-thirds of the financial audits for voucher schools. My understanding is that this bill would change the audit requirement from being an annual audit to being an audit that has to be done at least once every three years, since I'm sure we're all concerned that the citizens' money is spent well and properly, why would we want to move away from annual audits to only having one every three years? Kind of long to correct a problem, isn't it? 
We simply believe auditing on an annual basis, given the history of the program, is not necessary. It creates a lot of administrative burden and a lot of work, and we simply believe every three years is a reasonable amount. It's certainly a debatable proposition if you disagreed with it, but that's simply my view. Would you be open to an amendment that would change it back to every year so we could be sure the money was being well spent? In the previous, I think, two committees where the bill was heard, that might have been the time to have that discussion. But as we are near at the end of session, I'm not prepared to change the bill from the form that it is in to do that. Each amendment filed by the Democrats was rejected by the GOP majority, and the voucher bill is ready for final passage today. A bill to fix our broken unemployment system is also up for final passage in the House. Representative Omari Hardy of Palm Beach County says he's glad they're fixing the system, but he says the bill doesn't do anything about the fact that Florida is one of the cheapest states in the entire country. It's very clear that we have a broken unemployment system here in the state of Florida. And what's broken has to do not just with the software, or with the website. It has to do with the design of the program. The program was designed not to function. It's too hard to access benefits and the benefits that folks are able to get are much too low. And let's just talk about the human issues here. Working class Floridians, like working class people across the state, uh, they're struggling. They are barely able to keep their heads above water financially. Wages in Florida are very low, but everything else is high and increasing. The rent is high as we cut funding for affordable housing in this legislature. Healthcare is expensive as we refuse to expand Medicaid and as we cut hospital funding. The cost of higher education is increasing as we're tinkering around with bright futures and cutting textbook stipends. Taxes on working class Floridians are being raised in order to fund tax cuts for businesses. And so the cost of living in Florida is going up. This legislature is doing not very much at all to address those issues. And so working class Floridians are already struggling to keep their head above water. And now when someone loses a job, there's almost no buffer between that unfortunate situation and the misery that comes with having no savings and having no salary. Representative Anna Eskimani of Orlando tried to change that with an amendment increasing weekly payments by $100, something that's already part of the Senate unemployment fix. What this amendment does in a nutshell is just increase unemployment weekly benefits from $275 a week to $375 a week. Florida's unemployment insurance benefits are among the lowest in the country. And in fact, we were in the bottom 10 when it comes to states providing unemployment benefits. The bottom 10. I don't know about y'all, but I like to be on top as a state, not the worst as a state. And that's because Florida limits both the amount of UI assistance that unemployed workers can receive and also reduces the amount that can be considered in the workers' base period. And it's important to remember that though 275 is the current maximum, the average of Floridians actually qualify for is, like I said earlier, $250. So remember, as you do the math, four weeks of $250 is only $1,000. The average apartment in this great state is $1,400 a month. That's not counting utilities, food, car insurance, everything else. The benefits we have right now do not meet the mark in ensuring that someone can survive, not just through a pandemic, but survive any experience of unemployment, to get back on their feet and to get that job. Knowing too that we already have provided a major 
tax relief to businesses with the unemployment trust funds with House Bill 15, Senate Bill 50, the governor just signed last night, this is the right thing to do. We gave a big tax break to businesses. The least we can do is make sure workers get a fair share and an opportunity to have benefits they can actually survive on. Republicans defeated Eskimani's amendment and every other amendment from the Dems. The bill is now ready for a final vote. The House could also vote today on a bill to reform the alimony process in Florida, despite the fact that the sponsor of the Senate bill has thrown in the towel. Senator Joe Gruders of Sarasota brought his bill to the Rules Committee Tuesday, and it sounded like everything was copacetic, but there was a twist at the end. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members, I present to you the 2021 alimony reform bill. Before I get into the details of the bill, let me note a few important aspects of a divorce. First of all, in Florida, during divorce, all marital assets are distributed to the parties equally. This includes the family home, furniture, TVs, valuable items, and even retirement accounts such as 401ks. It is called equitable distribution. Then the court determines whether alimony is appropriate. During that process, the court has to determine if there is a need by one party and ability to pay by the other party. You need to satisfy both of those. In Florida, we have several different types of alimony, most of which this bill doesn't touch. This bill only deals with a grievous and objectionable form permanent alimony. In Florida, a spouse in a long-term marriage more than 17 years can be ordered to pay permanent lifetime alimony. So someone who was married at 21 and divorced at, say, 44 can be ordered to pay their spouse alimony forever. This lasts until either one of the parties dies or until the recipient remarries. And under this scenario, what incentive would there be for a recipient to ever remarry? Opponents of the bill will tell you that permanent alimony isn't really permanent. Opponents will tell you that anyone can go to court and seek a modification of alimony and produce it. Well, that's true, but in reality, it rarely occurs. But the reverse is also true, and people often seek to modify alimony upwards, too. Moreover, to seek a modification is difficult, complicated, expensive, and can take years of litigation, which requires those who have lost their income to incur overwhelming expenses and fees for the process itself, with oftentimes negative outcomes. So let me talk a little bit about my bill. And before getting into the details of it, I want to tell you <clears throat> that this bill was very craftly, carefully crafted to get to one goal, to reduce litigation so Florida families have more money left over after divorce to get back to their lives and businesses. Today, the winners of the divorce are everybody besides the families. So the general ethos of the bill is to reduce litigation, reduce family fighting, and not have Florida families depleting their assets and money to pay divorce lawyers every last penny they have. Our goals allow both parties to be able to move forward. I have a strike all that does five things. It, in, in, rather than go through the strike all and go through all the amendments, I want to say that it's a, uh, uh, when I took over this bill, it, I didn't really know what I was expecting, but I will tell you that the, the more I talk to people and the more I understand the issue, the more I, the more I think that a bill has to, 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 to pass so that you could end this permanent alimony, because uh, as we heard speakers at the last meeting talk about elder abuse, if people lose their alimony, I think it's elder abuse if people have to pay forever and they can never retire. Uh, uh, but at this point, there's there are some issues uh, that we uh, don't have common ground on, uh, and for that reason, I'm going to TP the bill and bring this bill back next year. Thank you, Madam Chair. This may be the end of the issue for now, but Senate Rules Committee Chair Kathleen Pasadomo promised it will be back. I want to uh, thank Senator Gruters for all the time and effort on the bill and uh, working with all the stakeholders. And I know how, uh, how tough a, an issue it is. And uh, we've gotten hundreds of calls from people on both sides. And I, and I think it's 
SMART will start early on, uh, get the stakeholders in a room, and hopefully we'll come to a consensus that all the members will be able to support. So show that bill temporarily postponed. One other bill that went off the rails in the Rules Committee Tuesday is the ban on transgender athletes in public schools and universities. The House has already approved its version of the bill, but when it was her turn in rules, Senator Kelly Stargell of Lakeland asked that the bill be TP'd, temporarily postponed. Next, we're going to take up tab 59, SB 2012, on promoting equality of athletic opportunity by Senator Stargell. Senator Stargell? Thank you, Madam Chair. I would like to TP this bill. Thank you. Uh, Show the motion to adopt that objection. Stargell chairs the Senate Appropriations Committee and issued a statement saying she decided to put the transgender bill aside to concentrate on the budget, which is just south of $100 billion. It's been more than two years since South Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz first introduced a bill to require background checks when you buy bullets. It didn't go anywhere during the Trump years, so she's reintroducing the bill known as Jamie's Law. We all see the startling resurgence in mass gun violence in recent weeks, and as mass gatherings resume after the pandemic, I think we all fear it may get worse. Gun violence sadly didn't go away with the lockdown. In fact, once again, 2020 saw nearly 40,000 people die from guns. More than 100,000 others were wounded in the crossfire, and hundreds of thousands more were traumatized by harm and loss. 2021 and 2022 will be no different unless we do something about it. The devastating physical damage inflicted by a gunshot is the result of the firearm used and the ammunition fired. Without ammunition, firearms are no more dangerous than any blunt object. Any individual that is prohibited from purchasing guns is also prohibited from purchasing ammunition. That's current law. Yet while ammunition is every bit as necessary for the operation of a weapon as the firearm itself, Federal law does not require a background check to prevent prohibited purchasers from acquiring ammunition. Jamie's law will close this ammo loophole by requiring background checks for ammunition purchases. The law is named for Jamie Guttenberg, who was murdered during the Parkland massacre. Her father, Fred, has made it his mission to do something about gun violence in America. These shootings aren't just about those that we bury. It's about every other American who lives with the scars of what happened that we don't always remember as much. My wife, Jen, my son, Jesse, and I should be watching Jamie live out her best senior year right now, getting ready to graduate, attend a prom, and go to college. But instead, we're watching as others are living out these milestones, and we're wondering, why haven't we done anything about gun violence yet? Why? You know, in 2018, after Jamie was killed, when I first met Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz, and we discussed the idea of the background checks on ammunition, at that time, and that's just three years ago, the estimate of weapons on the streets of America was about 300 million. That number now is about 400 million. More weapons with no new safeguards leads to predictable and inevitable outcomes. And that is more dead Americans. We're watching this play out every single day we can't turn away from the television without news of the latest mass shooting. It's fitting that today, when we reintroduce Jamie's law, that it's actually 22 years since the shooting in Columbine, 22 years of doing nothing to save lives from gun violence. This isn't going to solve itself, and we're seeing the reality of this on our streets. We are better than this. 
Today is the day that we say enough, enough dead Americans, enough with the mass shootings, enough of doing nothing. Today is the day where we need to address the reality of our prior failures by dealing with the reality of 400 million weapons on our streets already. And the only way to do that is Jamie's law. The only way to do that is to extend background checks to ammunition. It is the only way to deal with the reality of our prior failures and to save lives immediately from the weapons that are already on the streets. If we fail, the outcome will be predictable. It will be inevitable. It will be a continuing cycle of escalating gun violence and dead Americans. We are better than this. We need to be better than this. Guttenberg's congressman is Ted Deutsch, and he's part of this campaign for Jamie's Law. Uh, what we're asking for today is simple. We just want our gun laws to make sense. Right now, people who are prohibited by federal law from possessing or purchasing a firearm are also prohibited from possessing or purchasing ammunition. That makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is that we don't even check if someone is prohibited from purchasing ammunition when they buy it. Closing this glaring loophole is one of the very least things that we could do to save lives. Mass shooters are acquiring hundreds of rounds of ammunition to carry out these horrific attacks on our schools, our grocery stores, our workplaces, our movie theaters, churches, synagogues, mosques. And every time someone buys a bullet is an opportunity for law enforcement to check that 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 ammunition isn't going to end up in the headlines the next morning because of another mass shooting. Another intimate partner murder, another suicide. We need to fix our gun laws. The time is now. And when it feels like we can't go a day without a mass shooting in this country, it's time to treat this like the emergency that it is. The screaming emergency that it is. Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut is the Senate sponsor of Jamie's Law. Your calendar of events and Daily Dose of Florida Man are next on the Sunrise Podcast. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to your Sunrise Calendar. The Florida Commission on Offender Review meets at 9. The Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission meets at 9.30. The Florida Senate meets at 10. The Florida House holds a floor session at 10. The Local Government Efficiency Task Force meets online at 1. Trustees of South Florida State College meet at 1 in Avon Park. And the Trustees of Florida International University meet at 1.30. And finally today, a Florida man who drove a gold Cadillac into a retention pond is now facing criminal charges. Police in Castleberry say 29-year-old Justin Lorison asked a woman if he could stay at her home because he'd just been kicked out by his grandmother. She offered him 100 bucks to stay at a nearby hotel instead, and she says he responded to that offer by threatening to light her house on fire. Then she says he rammed her car with the caddy, doing about $3,000 worth of damage, and drove away. Police spotted the car. There was a brief chase before it ended up in a retention pond. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. 